Welcome to season six of the Life Giver Podcast, a place for honest conversation and hope for your marriage and home. This is your host, Corey Weathers, and I'm a military spouse, clinician, and advocate. And I'm bringing topics that I hear from the service community and counseling room to the podcast. This season, we're talking about what it means to be strong in body, mind, and spirit. And I'm giving you the challenge of rising above your circumstances to become the best version of you. So grab a cup of coffee or head out for that run. We have a lot to talk about. Welcome to the Life Giver Podcast. This is your host, Corey Weathers. I am um, thrilled to have in season six some really fascinating interviews. Um, I took a different style with season six um, and really um, wanting to focus more on leadership and strength and overcoming um, obstacles and, and what it takes to really become the better version of you. And that's kind of really what I wanted for season six. And so I am so excited to bring Dan Schilling to the podcast. Podcast. I think he completely, um, his story resonates with all of that. And so let me tell you a little bit about Dan, and then we're going to jump in and let him share a little bit of his story and his amazing book that's come out as well. Um, so Dan, in his 30 years of special operations, he conducted combat and clandestine missions around the world, founded and then commanded two special operations squadrons, the second one of America's most clandestine special mission units. He's also worked alongside the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA to defeat terrorists, as well as biological and nuclear weapons proliferation. An adrenaline enthusiast, which we are going to get to, he is also a professional demonstration skydiver, and he holds the Guinness World Record for the most base jumps. If you don't know what base jumps are, we're going to talk about it here as well. But the most base jumps in a 24-hour period. He's also a mountain speedwing pilot, which he told me before we started recording. He just did this morning before our interview. And so we are so excited to have you, Dan. And you have an amazing story. Um, you're doing amazing things and you have a lot to teach us. So thank you in advance for your wisdom and for joining me on the podcast. Corey, it's my absolute pleasure to be here. I, I really like your podcast. And we talked about this before we got on the air because I think it's focused on the positive aspects of life and how to pursue, you know, a positive space in your life. And I, I'm a very, I'm a raging optimist myself, despite some of the things I've done or gone through. And I just think it's wonderful what you're doing. And so I'm really excited to be Oh, thank you for joining me. And, you know, honestly, um, a lot of this podcast and a lot of the work is really about this lifestyle is really hard, um, regardless whether you're a military first responder, veteran, um, this lifestyle is really hard. It's really hard to um, succeed at the job, but also succeed at family and marriage and parenting and all of that. And so it's really coming from a place of hope and giving people the right information and content to help them make the decisions that they need to suit not only survive, but actually um, end well. I think is what this is all about. And, um, you have an incredible story. Um, your, that bio was like, <laughs> it's like a very small portion of what you've experienced in your life. So I think to start off, um, we talked before I hit record that you, um, you did 31 years in the military. You said both the army and the air force. I would love for you, and this is not going to do it justice at all because we have so much to talk about, but share a little bit of some of the highlights of what you did over that 31 one year career, um, because it was a lot and you've learned a lot and you have a lot to share as well. So tell us a little bit of, of your story and your journey. Well, I, I started as an infantry grunt paratrooper, you know, humping an M60 machine gun and a rucksack around. And that's how I got into the military. And I joined because the girl I was dating at the time reached into my chest, grabbed my heart and like wrenched it out. And like, that's what led me into the military. But I found my way into combat control, which is Air Force's ground special ops. And uh, and that's where I spent the majority of my career. But I, I got out at one point and I joined the Army Special Forces as a reservist in the Guard. And I, I ran the HALO program for a 19th group for a number of years. And then I came back into Air Force Special Tactics and I ended up I'm kind of an entrepreneurial person, and I saw some opportunity space, which isn't easy in the military. And I founded two different special operations units. And I, and a lot of my career was at JSOC. Um, a lot of people know the 24th Special Tactics Squadron, and but I was also at some other organizations that are classified for JSOC. And that's where I ended my career. I spent a lot of time, you know, sort of strolling around the CIA and NSA 
like a social butterfly, you know, talking with other people from those entities and working on some really existentially important threats. Uh, I think that face the globe faces, and I found that very satisfying. And so that was that's my career in a nutshell. And you know, in between there, most people know me because I was part of what everyone recognizes as Black Hawk Down. Uh, but you know, I, I've done other things as well, and. I, and I loved my career, but it, it exact toll. I was married a few times. I'm very happily married now, but I left some detritus in my wake and um, there's resilience, failure and success in my life that uh, I feel has come to define who I am now in a much more, I, I think I view it uh, more kindly than I used to. I, I'm more forgiving even with myself than I have been in the past. And that's part of my own journey. You know, and I've had my PTSD issues as well. And face jumping was sort of my way of dealing with things that I was trying to process. And it was better than the bottom of a bourbon or pill bottle. Now, face jumping, I don't recommend that for most people because it's one of the world's most dangerous activities. But it was a good way for me to center myself. And now I write books for a living. So well, you've said so much already that we could like dive down the rabbit hole of each of those. Um, and believe me, I'm going to try. Um, but okay. I want to kind of start off with, um, if you don't mind, I, I, when I was doing my homework before our interview, um, you had this great um, video where you talk about how um, you really had a place in your life where you're less wanting to live in the past and really be more in the present. And I do want to get to that here in just a second, but mm -hmm. maybe it's the counselor side of me, but I think there's so much that we can learn from what you experienced. If we can just kind of go back for just a minute. Um, what would you say for those who are listening, who don't know what JSOC is, it's joint special operations command. And so I would love for you to share, um, Looking back in your time with JSOC, what would you say um, most families struggled with the most with special operations? I think JSOC more than any other entity, because it's the it's the blackest end of the spectrum for special operations. If it's clandestine or it's it's extreme special ops and it's and it's the 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 intersection of counterterrorism and a bullet and American foreign policy, it resides at JSOC. And to answer your question, Corey, and it's a great question, I think what people struggle with most, and I was a, I'm one of those people, at, was, I was at the time, was the relentless nature of that organization. More than any other, you know, if you're in a special forces group or you're in a SEAL platoon on the West Coast or, you know, whatever you might be in special ops, the tempo is different than at JSOC because that place is like, go-go all the time. Mm -hmm. And the families really pick up more slack there than anywhere else, whether they want to or not. And I think another thing that is resonant there, and I've talked about this with some other leaders um, at, at some high levels, and is combat addiction. You know, mm -hmm. for It's changing now, but for the last two decades, and even when I was there before this big war, and I was doing a lot of stuff for JSOC then, the reality for a lot of operators or support people when they're deploying downrange, that's reality. And coming home mm -hmm. is the break, and that's not reality. And they they come home and they can't wait to get back to the war. That's really unhealthy. And I talk about in other interviews and in, in some of my other writings and books, you know, uh, killing people is a net negative experience as a human. It doesn't do anything to advance you, even if it's in defense of your life. And that's what my next book is about, is how not to be a victim of crime, but or or sanctioned in combat. When you kill somebody else, I don't think it advances you as a human. And this is just my personal feeling on it. And I became a Buddhist in the course of my own journey to uh, recovery and, and finding my own center and serenity. Such good stuff as far as, and thank you for your honesty on that, because I think, especially within special operations, I mean, really for a lot of our, our, what I call serving spouses, you know, regardless of what your MOS is, um, 
there's, there's those that get into this lifestyle and they really want to be a part of that, right? They want to be at the tip of the sphere and it can be addicting. And, um, for a lot of people like that's like what they're aiming towards. And for those who've actually gone through those things, it's, it's not quite as glorious as they would want, you know, everybody to go through it. And so at least that's what I've heard from other people. Well, it's a perception, you know, and we, and we propagate that in popular film and movie and, you know, and it's like the hero's journey and heroes rise to the occasion they do these things and uh you know i you're right i think reality is very different and i think self-reflection is so important later in life as you as you try to process these things because it takes years to decompress from that stuff i still have days that are not good well, and let me ask you this, because a lot of those that um, go into JSOC and special operations, they really um, want to be the best of the best. They really strive for excellence. They want to um, be excellent in everything that they do. I'm assuming that that was something that was important to you in your life and maybe still is. Um, how do you feel like that mentality has played out now in like post-military life? Have you brought that kind of need for significance, that need for excellence? Has that kind of bled over? over into this retirement life as well? Well, so first of all, I, when you were talking about, you know, they want to be the best, if they've arrived at that level, they are the best. They're the best in the world, <clears throat> you know, hands down. <clears throat> but to answer your question, you know, for me, what I've carried with me that was positive was resilience and, you know, determination and, you know, never giving up. And so when you're trying to accomplish something that's very hard, and for me, I want to be an A-list writer. That's my goal. I want my books to be have a great impact on people's lives. And that's really tall order. But what I've what I've come armed with is I now have this new role in life, and it's just a role. It's not my identity. It's just what I'm doing. That's very separate things. We can talk about that later. And that's where people struggle when they leave the military because mm-hmm. they feel they lose their identity. But for me, as I get into this new role, I've carried those tips and tricks that I've garnered from 30 years of working with some of the best men and women in the world, so committed to what they do and and so self-sacrificing. And those attributes are wonderful. They're positive. And that's helped me, I think, be successful. And the other thing, of course, that everybody who's listening to this would understand is everything I've done in my life, including writing books that people think is a solitary activity, is a team endeavor. Mm-hmm. Writing a book is not me struggling alone at my computer, which I do because I'm insecure about my writing sometimes. It's my editor and my wife, who's also an editor and the publisher and everybody else that gets involved. And that's how you make a success. And it's all these people involved. It's your name on the book, but the bottom line is, and it's, I wrote it, don't get me wrong, but it's it's a team. And I've carried those things with me mm-hmm. and that will never go away. And it's it's at the the core fabric of being a human is a social endeavor. Everything we do is social. The worst thing you can do to somebody is put them in isolation. That's why we do that to people to punish them. So you got to embrace that and it, and it facilitates things. And that's why if people are listening. If you're struggling with what you've done or what you've seen or failure, you may feel about marriage and things like that. The one thing I can say that's almost an absolute is you're not going to solve it on your own. You have to incorporate other people. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. And um, I can hear that language as far as not just the team approach to things that you've carried over, um, but that wanting to be a great writer. And what does it mean to be a great writer? And how do I um, develop those strengths? And and those who have been listening to me for a while know that I come from a strengths perspective of what you do right and what you do really well and leaning into that. And it's one of the things that I've really loved about the special operations communities is that they um, really do hone in on what their talents are, but it's also about that team approach of like, I want to be the best of the best at what I'm created to do, but I also need the guy to the right and left. Um, cause that's, you bring it all together and that's what makes an amazing team. And so I love the fact that that's kind of carried over into this kind of second life that you have. Um, and that was actually where I was going to go next is asking you, 
such a such a huge transformation and a lot of people are struggling with um that transition of the military world and um finding that identity not only in the camaraderie of of the circles that they have done life with but also um that meaning and purpose of of doing something either that you feel really good at or that's what you know and it's all always what you've done um but i see a lot of couples i'm going to say couples yes i think the the veterans struggle with that transition but I see a lot of couples struggling with it too, because it's just been our life and not knowing anything outside of that. Right. Um, so it's, it is a huge adjustment for the entire family. Um, but I just hear from so many that are either coming up on that transition or thinking about the transition to me, I'll just speak from what I'm hearing from the counseling office. Let's say, um, it's less about, um, leaving the camaraderie. Cause by then I think, you know, who your friends are and who you want to kind of like stay in touch with, but I, th- I think it's easier to stay in touch with people more than it used to be too. But I think it's also about like, I, I don't know how to leave what I've always done and find a sense of purpose doing something else. And like, how does that translate? And I'm not just talking about career, but just like finding that sense of purpose. And when I look at what you're doing now with writing, you have really transitioned into a place of helping people, motivating people, um, teaching people how to survive, teaching what it looks like to me, teaching people how to live, not just stay alive, but live their life. So what is that transition like for you? Well, for me, I'd gotten out of the military at one point completely anyway, 10 years in, and so, or 11 years in or something. And uh, so I'd gone through it once before, but I think there's a, there's a foundation I recommend people stand on when they go to make this transition. And it doesn't matter if it's leaving the military or getting a divorce or, or, or not leaving something, but trying to go to something else, which is, I think, always better than leaving something behind. And that is this. What you are changing is not your identity. It's a role. And one of the ways, reasons, one of the ways I like to help people understand what a role is, is I like to use parenting as an example. People think I am mothers in particular. I'm a mother, and I'm a mother for life. That's true in one sense. But right now, as you and I are talking, you don't view yourself as your mother's daughter anymore. You are an independent human who's gone on. You're you no longer need your mother the way that you did. So what happens to your mom? And what happens to you when your kids grow up and they don't need you anymore? And you have to accept that that was a role I played and I may still play it, but it's going to change. And I'm a veteran and I did these things, but that is not my identity. That's a false identity. And one of the books that saved my life, and I'm not kidding when I say this, was The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. That book, which is all about living in the moment and understanding what your ego is and recognizing that anything you did in the past is no more real than the dream you had last night. It's an experience you had, but it is not your daily life right now. Those are very important things to incorporate into what do I do next? For me, it was... You know, I was an action guy at the very top end of that spectrum. You know, I loved halo jumping and I, you know, I was a professional skydiver and, you know, riding motorcycles and blowing stuff up and scuba diving, all these things I did at work, um, shooting guns, whatever. Those were great things for an action guy. You can't be an action guy when you're 75, or if you are, you were just ridiculous. You're, you know, so for me, it's what do I do next? And a way to push myself was to try and become a writer and be a successful writer, commercially successful. And my metric is New York Times bestseller. I was very fortunate with my last book. I'm very intimidated because in two weeks I have a book coming out and will it make the New York Times? Man, I don't know. Maybe it will. I'm doing everything I can. But the bottom line is, since it's not my identity, if I don't make the Times with that book, you know what happens? Nothing. I just move on with my life doing the best that I can. And I'm still trying to do these things that are challenging. So I think for people trying to do that as a couple, couples are so important. I left a couple of divorces in my wake because I was so committed to my job. But I learned through them. And now I've got this wonderful relationship, which my wife and I have been married for you know 10 years. And we are one of those couples that just do everything together. And the more you can find the common ground by spending time what is it we want to do? To start with that question. As a couple, we're getting out of the military. What do we want to do? And then start from there. Not, okay, this is the next job or I've got an offer. That's different than what do you want to do? 
Mm-hmm. And you've earned the right to do that. If you're listening to this and you've been in the military, especially at JSOC, you've earned the right to do whatever the hell you want. And you should. And, and like you said, thinking about that in advance. So important. Oh, so important. Because otherwise life. you're behind the curve and you would yeah. never do that in your military training. Why would you do that with this big, important transition in your life? Oh, if you need to rewind what he just said, please do. Um, you you have the right to do that. And um, and we, we, you're right. We wouldn't do that in a mission, right? Okay. So you talked about, I think you said it was the, the book was called The Power of Now, right? You talked about that a second ago. Um, this is a two-part question. Um, and then I definitely want us to get into The Power of Awareness, your next book that's coming out. Mm-hmm. Um especially considering that book was such a game changer for you, which really did help you. It sounds like, um, kind of be in the present. What would you go back and say to the younger version of you? Um, cause there's a lot of people that might be that younger version of you that are listening now and listening to the wisdom that you offer. What would you say to that Dan back then? And especially in light of reading that book and how it changed your life. Oh, that's a really easy question. Thanks. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's it's a really important question, and you have to go through crucibles or evolutions, and there's no shortcut. What I would say to myself is spend more time thinking about who I am outside of the role that I play, because it's not my identity. I was a combat controller. You know, before that, I was a grunt infantry guy, whatever, the, whatever, whatever I, I was known as an army, special forces, whatever. That because maybe it's because I went through so many of those identities by changing services, like most people change apartments. Uh, I came to see that differently. And what I would say to myself and anybody who's even mid-career is you need to be kinder to yourself. You got to give yourself some slack and you should spend time thinking about that. I do that a lot. I think about philosophy a lot. My favorite philosopher is Aristotle. And because it's, you know, Greek philosophers and all that kind of crap, you know, people get caught up in that, but really he was the first individual to, to talk about what is happiness. That's like, to me, that's the essence of Aristotle. And for him, happiness was to be the best version of yourself by committing yourself to something that was worthy of you and finding happiness in that, man, that's brilliant. And, you know, my other favorite philosophers, Erasmus, we can talk about him, but, but, you, unless you're thinking about it, you don't really know. You're just wandering to the next thing and hoping something good will happen. And my advice to my younger self was don't just go from thing to thing, which is how you get into bad relationships and you choose poorly. I oh, was chose poorly. So good. And I, and honestly, that go, that's right in line with what I'm seeing with a lot of people is um, they're so focused on the job and the lifestyle and just doing the next thing um, that most couples, and I mean couples, this is not just the service member, but also the military spouse, um, that we don't know what makes us happy. We don't know what brings us joy. We're just going to the next thing. And then we wonder why we're depressed or isolated or not experiencing life at its fullest. And I see a lot of our couples, you know, um, the serving spouse, especially if they're in a, in a job where there's a lot of adrenaline, they mistake that as joy and mistake that as living. And so maybe you can speak to that here in a second. But what happens I see is, is the service member will come home, especially from a deployment and they're in this carpe diem kind of life, um, living life sort of thing. Got a spouse who's like trying to wrestle life into submission just so that they can survive (laughs) it. Right. And we end up having this clash, but that doesn't mean that either one of them even really knows what brings them joy and what they would do if they they were not in the military lifestyle at all. Well, but it, I would say it almost doesn't matter that they are in the military versus not because the, the, the process they become, they fall victim to is they're busy being busy. Mm. And that just means, Oh, today I get to do these tasks. I'm just paying the bills. I get the kids to school, you know, Hey, the, the, my husband or wife who has deployed his home, Hey, fix this, do that. That's busy being busy. And it comes back to what you and I are talking about, which is that's not the same as what has purpose in your life and and value and to find that you have to stop and you have to let white space into your life by just not doing anything by not doing anything i don't mean watching tv which is like the worst thing you can do because tv or movies induce a state of passive receptivity which is why people pay millions of dollars to advertise during the super bowl that's not good for you 
That's not you thinking for yourself. So you have to spend time. Talk. Talk things out. Allow yourself just to be together. Don't have to schedule things. That makes a big difference. And, and it comes back to being in the moment. And one of the reasons that I named my book, The Power of Awareness, one is it fits exactly what I'm talking about and how to not be a victim of crime or anything, actually. It's, it's, it's about situational awareness and intuition. That's the core of my book. But I actually named it in a, somewhat in homage to Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now because that book saved my life. I was probably pretty close to killing myself, and that book saved my life. People should read it if they want to see if it has value to them. Some people, it doesn't resonate. But it's I saved my own life probably because I allowed myself to, to think and explore and just absorb things from other people. And the best place to do that is books. Mm. You're not going to get it from a TV show. You're not going to get it from Oprah Winfrey talking about whatever. She had Eckhart Tolle. She had a love affair with him. You know, he was always on her show. You're not going to learn what he's saying by watching those two talk. You have to read it and think about it because reading is an active mental activity. Well, and I think it's a whole other conversation on how I think people are afraid of that white space for a variety of reasons. Terrified. Terrified. I was one of those people. I must be in motion all the time. Like most action guys at JSOC, I had to be in motion all the time. I mean, I joined the military, probably saved me from going to jail because it gave me someplace positive to focus all this energy that I had. But that energy isn't always positive. If you're always in motion, you're never thinking. And life's about reflection, you know, not living in the past, but who am I? Who's important to me now? Who are the people that I love? Those are really important things. There's nothing more important than that, in my opinion, the Uh. people you love. Well, and, and I, I would love if I could, if we had tons of time, I would, I would really want to unpack with you, um, how, how that, how you saved your life and what you did and what, what those practical steps are that you walked through. Um, but I definitely want to make sure we get to the power of awareness because this is also, um, really important. It's a really interesting topic too. And so, um, if we have time, we'll circle back to that for sure, because I think that's really powerful and people need to hear how, um, I mean, you can go to his book at or his website, danschillingbooks.com. I believe if that's right. There's some great videos on there where it really just, um, walks you through just kind of what your life is like now, Dan, and, um, how you have allowed that white space to come into your life. But it is a very scary place for a lot of people, whether it's because you don't know yourself or you don't know how you would fill that space and what you would do with it. I'm having so many conversations with spouses right now who don't even know what makes them happy. Um, but you're right. There's a lot of service members as well who, whether it's because of trauma in their life, they're afraid of that margin and what's going to creep in if they allow too much space, or if it's because they're going to be flooded with guilt or shame from the past, or whether it's just they don't know themselves either and don't know how they would fill that space and what they would do. So important to start I, asking yourself those questions. To those people, uh, you know, to just add to what you're uh, laying out, Corey, is give yourself a break. Allow yourself. There's no shortcut to time. We like to think because we're Americans. Americans are a very busy and frenetic people. Like that's why we invent airplanes and the automobile and all this and send people to the moon first. We have so much restless energy and that's a positive thing for an objective, but it's a negative thing for your development as a human. And at the end of the day, you're just a human, you know, Neil Armstrong, maybe the first guy stepped foot on the moon, but he was just a guy and he was a human and he went back to a really humble life. And he taught, I think at Ohio university or somewhere. And, you know, that's what he did with the rest of his life. I greatly admire people who do that because they understand that accomplishment. And in our cases, we're talking about the pinnacle of U.S. military you know, capability is JSOC and special ops. But that's just your job. And it's not your identity because you're going to retire. Trust me, it's going to happen. And so give yourself some space because you can't short circuit that. It takes time. Took and your life can't peak there, out. right? Like your, your life has to be about something more than that. Um, and the influence that you bring to others. So and find that other purpose and, and that purpose should be happiness. Read a little Aristotle, you mm-hmm. know, I, it's not as hard to read. It's not rocket science, man. It's just like, he's a down to earth cat. I really yeah. like Aristotle. <laughs> well, and let me, let me ask you this question. Cause you brought it up earlier. Um, tell me about your relationship with wanting to push yourself and, and do difficult things. You mentioned that earlier. 
Well, so I'm still doing that. You know, it's just now I do it in a different way. I still want to be the best I can absolutely be. But in true Aristotelian fashion, it has to be something that's worthy of me and that I also enjoy doing. Now, I like to say about writing, it's a guaranteed means of a low probability of income in as little as four years. I mean, it's miserable. You're, you're in your computer, you're doing this stuff, and it's really intimidating to me to do that. It's much easier for me to speed fly down a mountain like I did this morning from the top of Alta Ski Resort. Like, that's really easy for me to do. More difficult, what I was doing just before we got on was editing some frequently asked questions to put onto my website for my book that's coming out. That's really intimidating. I'm like, damn, I don't even want to do that. But I do. It's what I'm trying to accomplish with my life. So, uh, you know, I, I think I got lost of where we were headed with that question. But, um, you know, it, it ends up with books like The Power of, of Awareness. And, you know, for me, this book is how to not be a victim, really, how not to get robbed, raped or carjacked. And it's all around the foundation of having situational awareness. And for me, I, I break that into two. Most people think treat it as a singular term. But to me, there's your situation, which is external to you. Where am I? Who's around me? What's my place in those surroundings? What are the potential threats that always come from humans? It's not coming from the taxi or the building I'm standing by. It's the people in your arena. And what's my appropriate level of awareness? How aware should I be? You're in your office right now. I'm in my office. We're talking like I'm oblivious because I'm not under threat. But when you when you're having situational awareness in a strange place, you're traveling overseas, you look like a foreigner, your circadian rhythm is off, wrong time zone, your level of level of awareness, which is internal and you control, that is, you know, that goes up to something that where you're very attentive. And that's all in my book. And I really I hope people pick up a copy of this book um, because that's a big part of it. And the other half of that foundation to be safe is listening to your intuition. Mm -hmm. One of the astounding things I learned in the process of writing this book, and I drew from CIA case officer friends of mine and, and other special operations, men and women that I've known, but I really reached out to police detectives because they deal with the aftermath of crime. And my book is for every person. It's not for military people. And so to make it relatable, I really wanted to draw from the communities that deal with criminals and victims after the events, and that's detectives because they're only on the scene when something has happened. And the thing that was really revealing to me as I wrote this book was people override their intuition all the time. Mm -hmm. Corey, you do it, I do it, we all do it, and we do it at our peril. Because the amazing thing about intuition is it's millions of years of evolution speaking to you through all of your ancestors who really needed their intuition to prevent themselves from being somebody else's meal. And they were all fortunate enough to procreate and live long enough to do that, to arrive that here you are, here's Corey Weathers, and we're having this conversation. But the thing about intuition that's so fascinating to me was, I don't speak in absolutes very often. I'm a nuanced person. But the two things that are absolutely true about intuition are this. If you are responsible, are having a reaction. If you, I don't want to walk across that dark street that I walk across every day. I don't want to open the elevator for this dude, or I don't want to let him into my apartment complex. Whether you know it or not, consciously, your body's reacting to something. And the thing that's absolutely true is you are reacting to something, even if you don't know what it is. And the second part of that is it's 100% in your interest to listen to that voice. And all these victims of the crimes all said, I knew not to dot, 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 fill in the blank, which is open the door to the apartment or, you know, get in the elevator, whatever the case may be. But they overrode that. Mm -hmm. So in my book, what I've done, and I think this is a pretty innovative approach, is there are exercises to help you develop your situational awareness and learn to listen to your intuition. And I feel so strongly about this book. I wanted to save lives. I had to negotiate this with my publisher, that the exercises in my book are available for free on my website. So if you read the book and then you go out and you have a drink with your girlfriend and you're talking about stuff, you're like, what did he say about, you know, dining in a restaurant or using an ATM? You can pull up on your phone and there it is for free on my website. And I really want to save lives with this book. And that's why my new identity or my new role, not identity as an author, is very important to me because I'm, I, I want to save lives. That's a, for me, that's a worthy 
you know, new career. Absolutely worthy. So I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this book and I, and I have to give you a couple of, um, thoughts that have come up for me as I've been reading through your book. Um, it is fantastic and it's a very easy read. And so I just want to first start off with those of you who are listening. I think a couple of reactions come up in you. I think when you hear about what this book is about on one hand, some of you are going to like be the ones that run out and grab the book and you're like, yes, this is exactly what I've been needing. It is like a field guide for how to be uh, more situationally aware and know what, and learn what I don't know. Um, and, and figure out ways to be safer, especially considering this world feels a lot more unsafe than it ever has. Um, and then there's going to be this other camp of you that is like, I'm afraid to pick that up because I'd rather blissfully stay in a place of ignorance and not know, um, what I don't know. And I, I think I found myself in the in-between Dan and I, um, what's interesting, a couple of thoughts came to my head. First of all, um, I remember my husband a few years ago when we were in Charlottesville and working, um, and he was working with the intelligence community. He was like, I need you to take a class on this because there are things that I need you to know. And I was becoming a little bit more of a public figure at that point. And oh, I just yeah. didn't know right. what I didn't know. And, um, there was a lot of shady things that were coming through on my social media and, and I don't know, I was like, I don't know if I really want to know, but I kind of need to know. Um, and so and you do need to know, you need I, to know. I do. And I do. And I'm so thankful that your book came. I was kind of sharing as I was reading through it, was sharing some things with my husband. He's like, this is what I needed you to know the whole time. (laughs) Even when we were in Charlottesville, there was so much structure um, on us as spouses. This was not just your typical OPSEC kind of assignment. Like there was all kinds of things that they were um, training us on. And so I think those of you who are listening that are military, it's really easy for to go, well, I've been through the OPSEC training and I, you know, I know what I shouldn't be saying on social media and that sort of thing. And that's not, this is a whole other level of how to live your life in a way that's a lot more aware of your surroundings. And I think especially as women, this is so, so important um, because, you know, when you talk about that intuition. Uh, and they override their intuition more because there are so many double standards where women are concerned. I don't pretend to understand what it's like to be a woman, but I know this society is unfair to women and you and I are not going to solve this problem in the course of our conversation, Corey, but, but women override their intuition at greater peril than men because, because they don't want to be viewed. And this is words I learned from these police detectives. I spent a lot of time with some detectives um, in the course of writing the book. They didn't want to look silly. And this is a word I I would never use, but they all used it about themselves. And it's Mm -hmm. a statement about society. They didn't want to be, they didn't want to look like a bitch. Those are the two words that they used, which are terrible words to begin with. And there are no reason to put yourself in jeopardy. It doesn't matter what people think about you if your if your safety is is at hand. And um, and I, you know, my book is really hopefully for women more than men. No, can I, and if I can pause right there for just a second, because there were several places in the book that are my favorite places of the book, but I really, really appreciated that section where you really gave women, especially the permission. I think if I remember the words, right, that you're like, you're not rude and you're not being a bitch. No, like, you're not. You know, and that was so, um, because I've seen whether this is a whole other conversation, but whether it's thinking about your safety and listening to that intuition or a lot of the stories that we hear coming out of the whole Me Too movement um, was a lot of that intuition, but I didn't want to be this person, or I didn't want right. to assume incorrectly, or I didn't Which is want a societal to judgment. That's society judging you. It's not, it's, it's you allowing society's judgment to drive your own personal safety. And you shouldn't do it for personal safety or your goals. If you have something you want to do in life, you don't let society dictate what you should do. Well, and you have this great place in your book where you talk about um, you going with a group of friends. I think it was to go do a base jump. And for whatever reason, your intuition came up and you said, you know what? I just think I'm not going to do it today. And you walked down and a few people followed you and nothing bad happened, but it was... You followed your intuition and who knows if something bad was going to happen or not, but you didn't regret following that intuition. And I think that that's part of what happens with intuition, especially for women is I think for everybody, but especially for women is that we go, well, what if it's nothing? Like, what if like nothing was, or like we do listen to that intuition, nothing did happen. And for some reason we use that as a reason to talk ourselves out of it the next time. Well, nothing happened the last time. And I was, you know, I just was taking it too seriously 
And when you're actually saying the opposite is true, is listen to your intuition. It doesn't matter if something didn't happen. It matters more that you listen to that intuition. Actually, it does matter that nothing happened because that's the point. And yeah. that's the trap we fall into because nothing happened. And one of the things I talk about in the book is why it's easier for an amateur such as you versus a professional such as me, say in the realm of special ops is when I'm a professional and I'm with a bunch of other professionals and we're going on to an objective, that's a high threat objective and we got to do it. And I stop everybody and go, we shouldn't go in that building. And I, this is a story in the book, not from me, but from another guy in Iraq. And when you disrupt all those other professionals who are really goal oriented and they've got expectations from the command or your corporate headquarters or whatever the case may be. And you say, don't do this because, and they don't do it. Say they listen to you. You know what happens? The first thing they say is, Hey dude, nothing happened, which was the point. But for them, it's negative reinforcement. Mm -hmm. And this is why as an amateur, you know, if you are, I don't want to walk across that dark street tonight. Uh, for some reason, I walk across this parking lot every night after work, but tonight I got a bad feeling. How disruptive is it really to listen to that voice? It's not. Call your wife or husband. Call the police. Find someone else to walk with you. Wait till later. Wait for somebody else to come. That's not super disruptive, but the key is to start listening to your intuition. But what you have to realize, and I talk about this in the book over and over, when nothing happens, you're doing it right. Yeah. And that's no reason to go, well, nothing happened last time. So this time I'll just push it. That's, that's not a, that's okay. If you're trying to do something action guy ish, maybe, but not if it's about personal safety and your intuition is speaking to you. It's so important. That's why the, the big part of my book is really about intuition and situational awareness. Those two things will save your life if you let them and you listen. Well, if you listen and if you actually follow, you know, and I love the fact that your book is practical. Like it, you give so many great examples and like you said, exercises and ways to, it's not just, you know, listening to someone talk about situational awareness. It's actually how to apply it in your life better. You know, and I, I think one of the other things that kind of went through my head as I was listening is, you know, five, 10 years ago, um, when it comes to especially military couples, I would say first responder couples too, is, um, you know, we would, we would consider like how this, I don't know how to say this. It's going to sound really crude, but everybody's <laughs> listening. Who's going to understand. I think a lot of the language as it relates to marriage was more about when my serving spouse comes home and they're hypervigilant that I need to be this person that helps them be less hypervigilant and less, yeah. you know, all over, you know, as if that's bringing anxiety into the home. And what, as I was reading through this, Dan, one of the things I was thinking is you're inviting us actually to do the opposite, which I love because you're actually inviting those of us who are spouses reading this information on how to learn from our spouse spouse, which anytime we can learn from our spouse instead of judge them as powerful. Um, and it's actually a strengths-based approach of like, you know, my spouse isn't, you know, overly anxious or bringing that anxiety. There's not something that's wrong with them. They're not broken, right? They're, this is more about my spouse is bringing a strength to the equation and I can actually learn something about it and meet them there. And well, that's and a great point. I hadn't really considered it from that aspect, yeah. but Corey, that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, like how, how much of a different dynamic would we have in our marriage, especially those who are still in active service right now, how much of a different dynamic, if it was like, I'm going to introduce these things to my life. And so there's less conflict in the home. Cause I, I will be the first one to admit my husband just came home from a deployment. Um, I was on hyper alert for this whole deployment. It was just an up and down roller coaster. I'm going to share a piece of it that I think has to do with your book here in a few minutes. Um, but I was on hyper alert. And I think what happens for for me, I'm wondering if people will relate to this. My husband comes home and I just go into this relaxed state and let him be the hypervigilant person. And I just follow his leading, whatever, you know, and I become less situationally aware. And um, I could tell you story after story of couples that I've worked with where we are just talking about how to be protective of a date night. And let me share a story. Um, I won't give names away, but um, one couple 
I was working with where um, the veteran who does have trauma in his background, they were um, on a date night um, weekend, all expenses paid, wonderful opportunity for them to reconnect. And um, they get into a car, an Uber, they call an Uber, and it just happens to be a foreigner that's driving that car and is playing Muslim prayers in the car. And that veteran locked up, went into paralysis and just internally just froze. But what was happening with them as a dynamic, as a couple, is that the spouse was always following that that her husband's lead. And so if he's not saying, I don't want to get out of the car, then I don't want to, you know, mess with that. I'm just going to wait for him to do whatever it is that we should do. And from that point forward, he, it sabotaged their whole weekend because what he actually really needed from her in that moment was for her, him to be able to maybe squeeze her knee and for her to say, Hey, can I, we pull over and go to this restaurant over here? We changed our mind. And by being situationally aware of not only what our spouse was going through, but what was happening in the surrounding, she could have won the day. Right. And so I think something right. happens in our marriages where we kind of default and let one person be the situa- situationally aware person or the hypervigilant person. And then we have a lot of like thankfulness or judgment, depending on how it affects the, the situation. Dynamic. Right. 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 And what right. you're inviting us to do in this moment, I think is actually um, learn from that, see it as a strength, match our spouse and, and really really gift that to ourselves and our family as well. Well, and, and the reason that I do that in the book and I state it very clearly is, is that your personal safety is an individual responsibility. It cannot be delegated to a spouse. Maybe they're more competent and they're and it's a Delta force operator. And like, you know, he's going to shoot anyone that comes around and he's, you know, he's ready to do that or he's going to crawl Magam to he's the ground. And, right. Whatever. But, but the bottom line is, it, your personal safety is is your responsibility and no one else's. There's an invisible, and this is why I think sometimes people can inadvertently allow themselves to become a victim of crime, is there's this invisible expectation that somehow this shouldn't happen because it shouldn't happen. No one deserves it. No one's asking for it. It doesn't matter what you dress like or what you're saying, it, but that somehow it shouldn't happen so an invisible something will step in and prevent it from happening. The police, your neighbor, it doesn't matter. Fill in the blank. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. It can't be anybody else's responsibility. How could it possibly? And that's one of the statements I make in the book. Um, and that's it, it's critical that people understand that. And back to your story, that person, you know, she, she could have and I'm not we're not faulting her. She's trying to figure it out. They're they're in a dynamic that's very difficult. He's in a difficult spot, one of the worst. He's locked up and it can happen and it doesn't make him less. It means he's he's sacrificed a lot. If she's more aware of what is happening through intuition as well as situational awareness, she's more apt to take the right action because intuition isn't just about threats. Intuition is about positive response. One of the things I talk about in the book and I as a, to emphasize that is Think about someone you met in your life and you knew instantly that person was a good person and was going to be positive in your life. That's intuition. So it's not just about prevention and defense. It's about finding opportunity in life. And that's, you know. One of my philosophies, I guess. Well, and let me ask a tough question here. You've probably been asked it before. Um, what would you say to that person that said that says, I'm maybe afraid to pick it up because I'm afraid it's gonna make me more anxious and more scared to walk out into the world? Um, how would you answer that? I don't think that it will. I wrote this book purposely. It's not full of acronyms, it's not a bunch of military stuff. I'm like, I'm like the least military cat around. Like, and I did 31 years, but I don't really People are sometimes surprised that I was in the military because I don't function that way. And so it's there's so much in this book that will help relieve anxiety. This is what it's designed to do. I hope. You know, that's my job as an author is to do that. And at a time when people are emerging from not just deployments and things we're talking about, but the pandemic has disrupted society. And there's a lot of anxiety about going out into the world. The book will provide well-founded. Uh, confidence to do these things. That's what it's designed to do. That's why I have exercises in there that will help you how to make a how to make a plan when I feel like I might be under threat. You know, that's something that especially a spouse who doesn't have the training that 
you know, the military member has is going to be at a deficit with. And the book is there to do that. And these all of the, the six rules in my book are very sequential. They're all centered around knowing, preparing and taking decisive action. And it maps out how to do that in an easy to understand once you've read it and then implement. And of course, the key then is practice, practice, practice. It's just like shooting a gun. You know, one of the reasons I was the best combat shooters in the world and everyone where I worked was, whether they were Army, Navy or Air Force, was because we did it all the time. And if you start to look at these exercises and, you know, use that to enhance your intuition, that's what this book's about. But in the end, because I am a Buddhist and I even say this in the book. The essence of Buddhism is Siddhartha Gautama, the guy who became known as the Buddha, what he said was, figure it out for yourself. That's the essence of Buddhism. And he's like, here's how I did it. And you can follow my path, but take nobody's word for it, including mine. That's my book. Here are some great tips. It's not the ultimate book, and it doesn't guarantee safety 100%. But if you learn those things and then think about them, it will make you more confident and it will relieve anxiety to go back to the answer to your question. That's why people should pick it up. That's what the book is for. Um, I should mention uh, that I start book tour here in a couple of weeks. So I'm going to be, anyone's listening at Fort Bragg, I'll be at the country bookshop in Southern Pines. And everyone who's ever been to Southern Pines knows where that store is on June 5th uh, at 9 a.m. It's on my website. Actually, it's not on there yet, but it will be in another day. I'm putting all my, my book tour stuff on there. And I'll also be down at AFSOC at Herbert Field on the 4th of June. So for this community that's listening here, like please stop by, say hi. Uh, I'm going to give a, a talk at, at Country Bookshop. It's a ticketed event. And uh, I really hope it helps alleviate that anxiety and make people feel confidence because they should be, because they're practicing the right types of you know, skills to be safe. That's the book. Well, so, and I also appreciate your humility throughout um, throughout uh, the book when you share times when you you felt like you got it right, like that time you know when you decided not to do the base jump, and then the other times where um, you wish you would have done something different. And so that humility, and I th I think that it's always easier to learn from somebody who's using their own examples or stories. There's wonderful stories throughout. Um, it's obviously intriguing and interesting to hear you know a whole world of examples that most of us would never be privy to otherwise. And so that's a, a fascinating reason to pick it up as well. Um, I would love in the time that we have, I'd love to ask you, because I think this is a big question. Um, there's a lot of people out there, including yourself, because I'd love to know how you're applying this to your own life, who um, have um, their you know, let's talk about their footprint, their digital footprint, because there's a lot of people who are, especially because of COVID, uh, have, have transitioned their career to an online presence. I know mine is a very public online presence, um, something we've oh, had. you are, definitely. I, do, I found a I lot of I know you looked at my, I'm like wanting to hide right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've done some things. I've learned some OPSEC things and I've done some things, but I would love to hear um, you talk about that in your book on how to reduce your digital footprint. There's a lot of people who are trying to build a career and are very much online. So is there anything that you can give us um, some wisdom, obviously pick up the book for a lot of the practical stuff that would be in there that you could share on how to reduce that digital footprint? And how are you doing that when you're an author yourself? Well, I, I, I fall, uh, I fall victim to the, a, a, a much larger digital footprint for the same reason you do. I I'm building a brand and it's, it's, if you want to be a successful author and, you know, for everybody else, you know, they they rely on their strengths. For me, it tends to be Blackhawk Down, world record for most base jumps, and now I'm a New York Times bestselling author, and they that's a trifecta, and then you build this brand about this action guy. And that, I was an action guy, but you know what? I'm a middle-aged dude who hangs out and reads books all the time and hangs out with his wife. Like, I'm not that exciting of a person. Yeah, I still speed fly, you know, and I base jump sometimes. I, I don't skydive because I think it's kind of boring, but but I put put those things online. And, and you, you, but I'm very acutely aware of that. Now, in my case, I've got a, an ace in the hole, which is my wife was a cyber warfare expert from NSA. <laughs> so she, <laughs> she totally manages a lot of, yeah, not everybody has one of those in their back pocket. And I'm very grateful <laughs> for her because she's way smarter than I am. But, but it, it really comes down to, without getting into the book and bogging down, it's this, everything you put online is there forever. 
And so one of the things I talk about that I thread through the book is the Ted Bundy case, because a lot of people know Ted Bundy and it's relatable. You know, he's just, he was just an asshole and, uh, you know, and he, and he deserved to die horribly. And, you know, I'm glad he's gone. But the bottom line is, if you think about anything you post goes to Ted Bundy, that will help you make those decisions better. Because if you don't want Ted Bundy to know where you're going to be tonight or, or, or where you live or when you're going to be on vacation and when you're coming home so he can wait for you in your house, that'll help you make better decisions. And so that's really sort of a distillation of that part. No, I love that. And so please, there's so many of you that have started businesses, a lot of you military spouses um, that have started businesses online. Um, there, I know a lot of couples where the spouse is very much online with a very large digital footprint and their spouse so is nowhere near online. And again, right. I think it goes back to the strengths of what your spouse brings to the table that we can um, see it as a strength and not just two separate parallel lives. Like we can learn a lot from each other. Um, I definitely had to make a lot of those decisions early on. Like, I, I don't put pictures of my boys online as much anymore. I don't share where I'm going to be like that night. Like I, in my time in Charlottesville really taught me a lot of that. And so I'm um, definitely pick up um, Dan's book so that you can apply these. And some of them are very simple things that you can do. They're not hard. Um, Everything in the book things. is designed to be simple and, and uh, you know, shamelessly plugging the book because it is what my job is, but, the, but I wrote it so I could save lives is this book isn't just for people to pick up. It's for people you love. If you have a mom, and probably most of you who are listening have a mother, you should buy this book for your mom or your kids. If you've got kids that are, you know, to college, high school, you know, they might not want to read it. But there's, there's a lot of, there's, there's entertaining stories in the book. I wanted it to be a good read, but it's very simple to understand. You know, the science I bring in, which is important, I don't bog down on amygdala and all, you know, the lizard brain, like I, that's not what's going to help people. Like I brought some of that in, but most of the books I've read that were on uh, personal safety are kind of crappy because they overload with too much expertise and acronyms, or they use too much science. And I wanted a book that was very interactive and then provide those resources online for people for free. And, and they would be easily understood and, but still entertaining. But if you've got people you love, I, I recommend this book for, for a number of people that you think if they're traveling, if they're deploying, you know, the FBI Academy is, 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 as has the book. And I think they're going to incorporate it into their curriculum, which I'm very flattered. They're going to do that, but it's got value to experts as well, or they wouldn't be doing that. And so um, I'm, I'm excited for the book to get out there in the world. And of course, because I'm an insecure writer, I'm also intimidated by that. But the bottom line is I I, I really wanted to get out there. It comes out on June 2nd, and I hope everybody picks up a copy. And if you're Fort Bragg, come by on June 5th. I'll be at the Country Bookshop at 9 a.m. And stop by there, and you can register for the event. This is one of those times that I, I don't, I'm not happy that I'm in Texas. It's a little, oh, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. But let me know when you're going to be out here for sure. This is going to be a handbook for me for sure that I'm going to really um, hold on to and, and revisit a lot. Um, so it's, it's, I'm really thinking a lot of a lot of the spouses that are solo parenting a lot and you're by yourself. And um, I think Dan, one of, one of the things that I wanted to end on because man, how much I would love to get into like um, the base jumping that you've done, <laughs> the world record that you did and. And, um, and what you learned from even being a part of a very traumatic experience um, that was also um, a very heroic experience as well. There's just so much wisdom that you have to share, which is why you're just going to have to go pick up all of his books, because you've also written a book on um, John Chapman, who was a Medal of Honor recipient that's being turned into a movie that I understand. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Alone at Dawn was my last book. Uh, it came out a couple of years ago and we are filming this monstrously expensive movie, which is great starring Jake Gyllenhaal, and it's uh, directed by Sam Hargrave, who directed Extraction. If anybody saw that with Chris Hemsworth, it's the most watched mm -hmm. film on Netflix or something. And Sam's a brilliant, brilliant director, and Jake is just this great actor. And I'm really, I get to be a producer on the movie, and I didn't even know what the hell a producer did until actually I got hired. And so now I'm part of this process, and it's fascinating. I'm learning a lot about storytelling that way, and I like storytelling. That's what I do. And uh, so I'm excited about that. And, you know, I hope if that resonates with people, they pick that up. But really, the power of awareness is designed to, to help you feel confident and relieve anxiety and be safer. And if nothing happens, then you're doing it right.
you know, and it's also about what happens afterwards. It's a lot. The sixth rule is about recovery and it's about reaching out to people and using resources and how to think about something when you've had a near miss or you've been a victim of a crime. That's in the book, too. It's a very comprehensive book and it's really easy to read. Because I'm not that smart. I can't use big words. <laughs> I would challenge you on that. But I will say, um, you know, I, I want this to be about you, but I, I hope that this kind of um, drives home the the importance of this book. Um, you know, I think it's really easy for a lot of us to go, you know what, like, you know, that's that happens to other people like that's not going to happen to me. And, you know, and I, I know we do live in a world where um, there's a lot more fear than there used to be. I can tell you that this last deployment was very, very challenging for a lot of reasons. But right at the end of the deployment, um, before my husband came home, there was a situation where we, we have a ring doorbell and I realized um, that I woke up one morning to an alert that there was someone on my doorstep in the middle of the night. And um, when I went back through the camera, I found that there was um, a man who had been lurking around um, the doorstep in the middle of the night and doing some further digging in the neighborhood as well, realized it was somebody that actually lived in the neighborhood who also has a criminal background. And it was a very scary moment for me to be by myself and having to figure out how do I handle this situation. And I have to tell you, Dan, as I was reading through your book, um, there were some key things that I'm so thankful that I did right. And there was also some things that I could have done better. But I can tell you that um, that intuition kicked in for me. And um, I, I can't, there's this moment, and I'm not saying everybody should do this, and you don't recommend everybody doing this, but there was this point in the book where you talked about when you are in a situation, especially in a public situation, and you kind of get this feeling like this person person is creepy or, or something's off to listen to that intuition and, you know, definitely not necessarily approach the person, but just even making that eye contact or making that gesture or whatever you feel like you need to do to kind of gain some composure there. That was something I ended up having to do. This was a person that lived on our street and I drove by one day and I, I realized I have, I have the opportunity there be a victim or um, make my presence stronger and known of, of what I'm dealing with here. And so I actually, it was a public, you know, outside situation, but I was actually able to step out and, and with other people face that person and say, you know, you're, you're, you can't be on my property and call the police and actually do the right things so that I felt safer. And had I not followed of, that I'm intuition... Sorry, yeah. yeah. At, the, at, the, at the end of the day, there's still personal decisions you have to make. Nothing is a guarantee. So, you know, nothing I write in the book is is going to say this is exactly what to do. Right. But what you're talking about, Corey, is it's really less criminal and victim and more predator and prey. Yeah. And when you confront people, if you make the decision to do that because you think it's the best course, you're displaying predator attributes yourself. And that sends a different signal to a criminal. One of the things that happens, I've learned a lot about criminals in writing this book, because I came from special ops and we don't, we deal with terrorists and we deal with them kind of terminally. We don't deal with criminals and we don't take them to court. Was that if you disrupt a criminal, you're throwing off their game mm -hmm. and, you know, they're not going to follow you forever. And they're, they, you know, and if, and if they're planning to ambush you in the spot and you disrupt that, they may not pursue it anymore at all. And if you think, they're looking at you. You don't want to give them a furtive look over your shoulder. That's what a deer does when it's being stalked by a cougar. You want to turn around and look them in the eye and say, hey, clown, I'm looking at you. And I know you're there and you know I know you're there. And this is sending a different signal. But ultimately, it's still a decision you have to make. My hope is the book helps you make those decisions yeah. more wisely because there are no guarantees in anything in life. What you did could have set him off. But the thing, great thing is you had people around you and yeah. you involved the authorities and that sends a very strong signal. Thank so you for I saying right that. I'm, I'm not at all suggesting people should be confronting criminals. What I'm right, saying is right. I, your book really validated for me that I made for me, I made the right choice that I needed to make because I, I knew I was faced in that moment of staying a victim and, and being that prey, if you will. Um, right. And like feeling victimized. And I, I think I just hit a place where I was like, I couldn't live like that. I couldn't live not knowing what to do. And so when I saw an opportunity in public to confront and, and say, you know what? It was exactly what you said. It was like, I know you and you know me, and this is not going to happen. And it's not going to, you know, so 
I'm not at all encouraging people to confront uh, somebody that you shouldn't be confronting. But what I am saying is that, Dan, your your education and the way that you write the book on the importance of listening to your intuition to realize that through, I think, the power of that situational awareness, you're not a victim. You don't have to be a victim. You can actually go out into your life having the right tools in your kit bag, if you will, having the right strategies and with the practice that you're suggesting and with all of the exercises that you make available, which I'm so thankful is for free on your website, that you can feel a little bit more confident because you know what to do and how to handle um, situations around you. So I just want to say thank you for writing the book. Thank you for, um, taking your history and your story and trans and continuing your story into a place that rewrites almost in a beautiful way. You've rewritten your narrative of your story. You, you know, you started off half of this story with one way and you've kind of like rewritten it with, um, fulfilling your purpose with, um, even in a lot of ways, bringing purpose out of the pain that you experienced in the past by saving lives now. And I'm just so thankful for that. And I'm thankful for you writing this book because it really does arm us with the right information um, and give us the tools that we need to, to not feel like we're um, a victim of our circumstances that we can confidently go out and live our life. And the way that you live your life, I think is also an encouragement to how we can really be in the present and not live in fear and actually enjoy what's around us, whether it's our relationships or the beauty of nature or adventure or the things that make you feel alive. If you can figure out what that is for you. So thank you for being that living example for us. Uh, well, that's very kind of you, but in the end, you know, for me, I think the world is a wondrous place and people should take the opportunity and be prepared safely to go out and experience it. That's what the world's for. And you shouldn't do it alone. Life's for sharing with other people. And, uh, and I hope the book helps with that. Well, thank you so much for joining me for the podcast. Thank you for giving me a little bit extra of your time. Um, you know, please go to danchillingbooks.com where you can see all of his books and keep up with him as well. Um, it's, he's got some beautiful videos of, of some of the jumps that he's done and, and just, it's fascinating. And it's also, um, it's inspiring. I hope that we all involve a little bit more of living life and being more in the present than we do currently. Maybe don't watch Netflix tonight, go for a walk, go do something fun. Other than that, Dan, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you a lot. Corey, I am so grateful. Thanks for having me on. I really love positive energy, you know, interviews and your whole format is about positive energy. So thanks for having me. It's been a great experience and for everybody else out there, I, I hope they're safe and I hope everybody's doing well and, and that they're happy and find the direction they're looking for. Thank you for listening to the Life Giver Podcast. If you're enjoying these episodes, please share the podcast with other service couples that may benefit from the show. If you'd like more information about me or Life Giver, head on over to coreyweathers.com or life-giver.org.